card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, Mr. Next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour-long program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm one of the hosts of Wharton Moneyball, Professor Adi Weiner, and I co-host and collaborate with my colleagues Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, and Eric Bradlow. I am a professor of statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm here today to break down the week's top takeaways. So we had two guests on our past week's show, Stephanie Kowalczyk, who is the lead data scientist in the Game Insight Group at Tennis Australia. Stephanie is actually a PhD in statistics and is now following her passion, which is sports analytics, in particular tennis analytics. And she has a a few wonderful papers in the academic world on tennis analytics. And now she's working professionally as a tennis analytics inventor. Our second guest was Patrick Lucy, a returning guest. He's a director of data science at Stats. Stats is the company that provides data feeds for all the major sports to almost all news organizations and the web. And he is working particularly on insights that can be gleaned from this data. And he had some great success using this incredible data to write research articles and to basically package this new data into what will hopefully prove to be very useful tools for the analytics community. So our first clip is of Stephanie Kowalczyk, and she's talking about the difficulties in in, uh, aggregating tennis data. And let's hear from her. One of the problems, I think, with the data availability in tennis is just sort of the fractured structure of the sport itself. So it's not something where you have like a centralized league that can kind of make a single decision to say, okay, we're going to give up, you know, all of our historical box scores and everybody will have access to it. We have multiple tours. You have the ATP, WGA, the ITF. They all run different events. Each Grand Slam, the four you know, biggest tournaments of the year are all individually directed. So it, it makes it more difficult to kind of have any sort of cohesive plan with sort of open data. But you do see individual events will show like match summary stats at the end, and those are made available through websites. And you now, because of interest in um, in trading and betting, I mean, there's a lot of things on the web that allow summary stats and match results to be available. So I'd say having you know historical data about match results during the open era is quite readily available. So tennis has struggled a little bit behind the other sports in terms of data aggregation. Baseball was the leader. Basketball has followed suit. And I would guess uh, football, there's a lot of data available and even more of that's coming online. Tennis and soccer are still more distant. And one of the problems that Stephanie alerted us to was the problem of lack of unity. There's all these different uh, tournament structures, and all of that has to be aggregated. One of the nice things she mentioned is the betting markets. The betting markets, particularly in Europe and Asia, for tennis are enormous, and they're practically instantaneous. You can bet on a match while it's going on, and the odds are updating constantly. There has been allegations of cheating and match fixing, but that, of course, goes hand-in-hand with um, data availability 
availability. So those two are kind of working together. And why you need data, of course, if you're going to make a good forecast, if you're going to try to beat the market, the way to do that is with as much data as possible. So, of course, tennis is still lagging behind, as I mentioned, and in one of the places that it falls behind is in camera angles. Having the data that actually is giving you a shot-level look at the game is where the sport's really been lacking. But it's because largely of the availability issue, because, you know, you do have that tracking data that's been there now. You've got at least a decade worth at the professional level. And it's just the inability to be able to utilize that and kind of evaluate it on a larger scale. So for that reason, a lot of coaches, players, they're still left with the kind of traditional video analysis, which we know is going to be prone to bias. Like, you know, I have limited time, so I'm going to look at the things that I already think are probably the things that I need to be paying attention to, which would leave out the possibility of recognizing potential inefficiencies in the game or patterns of play that we're not as aware of. So basketball went through a revolution with essentially play tracking data. We can watch the ball and move around and break up the film and aggregate and create summary statistics. And you can learn, for example, that certain players in certain locations and under certain opponents and don't move right or move left. And that stuff is still has yet to appear for tennis. And that's the kind of thing you'd like. And you, you would like to take the camera level data, the shot level data, aggregate it and extract information that'll tell you where individuals' players' strengths and weaknesses are. And so what Stephanie was pointing out is we're still stuck in the old way of doing things, and I think the revolution, if there will be one, is yet to occur, and a lot of that is limited by data availability. So Stephanie has actually written quite a bit extensively in the academic literature. She has a really nice paper on the Pythagorean theorem for tennis. Uh, Most sports have a way of calculating your expected winning percentage based on kind of aggregate statistics that are not directly winner loss or points gained. And she has one for tennis, which she developed. She also has looked at aging curves in tennis. And let's hear from her. When uh, Roger Federer turned 30, so that would have been like six years ago now. But at the time, it was, I mean, it's very surprising too, thinking of like where he is now. But back then, you know, people were starting to ask him about retirement. And so that led me to think, well, you know, maybe this notion that 30 is some kind of barrier for professional players, that they're definitely beyond their peak. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe there's been a shift. So I did a kind of demographic analysis of about 20 years, looking at how ages among the top 100 players have changed over time. And it did show that over a course of about 15 years, the average age of the top 100, both the men and women had increased by about three years. So you see older players and players having greater longevity on both sides of the tour. And I think it sort of aligns well with a shift that we kind of have a general awareness of in the strategy, it going from a more kind of power serve and volley game to a more baseline endurance game. The conundrum in tennis is still baffling to so many people, which is why we have dominance at the top in the men's game by essentially old men. If you look back relative to the history of tennis, players who are near 30, at 30, or well above 30 are still the dominant male tennis players. And on the women's side, you, of course, have Serena still uh, dominating it up. Um, Since we recorded this, the French Open was... uh, 
decided, and it was won by a on the friend, the women's side by a very young player. Um, but basically, we've had seen shifts in tennis, which Stephanie's alerting us to. Obviously, many factors that kind of go into it. Let's hear a little bit more about aging in tennis. There are so many things that have happened, you know, over the past. 10, 20 years that it's probably a multi-factor explanation. So I think both, you know, improved fitness, nutrition, those have to have had some improvements in longevity. But I think it's interesting to see that the shift very strongly coincided with changes in racket technology that would explain a lot, not only the shift in the play strategy, this kind of universal shift, to the baseline game, and that coincided as well with these aging trends. Interesting hypothesis. Does technology and the shift in game strategy work together, or are they just simply happening at the same time? It's hard to figure out or disentangle those two just because one event happens at the same time as another or one happens before the other. It doesn't mean that it is the cause. So, of course, technology has had a huge impact on tennis and certainly has had that impact in the way the game is played. Our next guest was Patrick Lucy, who I mentioned earlier. He's the director of data science at Stats, and uh, he's going to Tell us a little bit about what his company does. Here at Stats, uh, we've been able to get some really good interns. Uh, I work with Panna Felsen. So she was a PhD student from Berkeley, and she's back with us now. She's a fourth-year uh, computer vision researcher. And the basic premise is Stats Boardview. We've been collecting tracking data for the last five years, and it's led to all these great innovations. So you can think back to Goldsbury Court Vision work back in 2012, then we have detecting ball screens, so the guys at uh, MIT have detected that the last couple of years. And then we have the Harvard guys um, looking at expected point value. Then the USC guys looked at rebounding. Um, we've done some really nice work in personalization and play retrieval. But with the SportView data, it's kind of limiting because it still is the center of mass. And so we have this nice example where we just kind of show a play. And just based looking at the tracking data, a player has a a wide open shot, but something happens which affects them not taking that shot. So when you actually look at the video, you can see that the player gets a bad pass and he kind of juggles the ball, and that can explain why he took that. um, Didn't take um, the shot, for example. So one of Stats' products is this video system called SportsView, and what that does is it collects information, and if one processed, on where the players are, where the ball is, and that has produced some very interesting research. I know that I'm familiar with the Harvard research he mentioned, which allows you to track expected value changes. So if the ball is passed, but players move, you can look, you can watch which movement, which pass, which action causes the biggest impact in terms of expected points, and that's an interesting way to extract information from the sport view data. But it's still very limited, as Patrick talks about, because it it identifies only the center of mass of an athlete. And what their new data is trying to do is extract much more detailed information. And that can be used to answer, for example, why it is that a player didn't take a shot when it looked like they were open in the right position based on the course data that has traditionally been available. And what he's going to tell us is that if you look deeply at the video, you can see why they didn't take the shot generally because of positioning, balance, etc. So let's hear a little bit more about how that works. 
Once upon a time, we could capture body pose, but it was kind of, we, we had to do that in a lab setting. So you can think of Vicon, they do it for movies. And then 2000, I think 10 or 11, the Kinect came out, Microsoft Kinect. So you had a depth sensor and that's able to capture body pose, but that can only work in really limited situations. So you, you have it at home, you know, you can use it in your living room, but that's about it. But then, you know, we're talking about deep learning GPUs. Now we can actually do it in the wild. So given a 2D image or video, we can start to estimate the body pose. So if you go to CVPR, which is a big computer vision conference, most work, it just looks at using deep learning and a really exciting field is capturing body pose. So with six high-definition cameras, you can have very detailed information to tell you what the position of the player is, is provided you can process it. And that's what deep learning is. Deep learning is a way to take a monumental amount of image data, extract features from that, and then build a highly iterative model that'll locate what is happening on the playing field into, into computer coordinate system. And that's what's going on. And it's the, really the introduction of very high amounts of computer power that is making this possible. So let's hear more from Patrick Lucy about deep learning. There's a couple of things before we can get to the results, so I'll just quickly summarize. So once we have the 2D estimate from the image or video, we have to project that back to 3D. And that's an ill-posed problem because we're actually going from lower dimensions to high dimensions. But again, given lots of data and there's lots of techniques out there, which allows us to do that. Once we have it in 3D, we have to do some type of alignment. So as you know, people have different, you know, they're different heights, different sizes. So we have to get in the same frame of reference so we can compare wrist and an arm to, you know, to various players. So for this work, we analyzed three-point shots. So we actually found the anatomy of a three-point shot. So we had to temporarily break it down into these segments. You can think about it, you know, before I set up to take a shot and then during the shot, then after the shot. And so we have to do these kind of pre-processing steps before any analysis can take place. So the learning algorithm extracts a... 2D figure, and you can see them, they look almost like stick figures, which tells you exactly what the configuration of the body pose is. They then create a 3D projection of that 2D image, and then they break down a three-point shot into its components, and what they discovered is that there's different parts to taking a three-point shot. And one of the things, the really interesting findings is that you can actually determine from the deep learning algorithm applied to the video whether or not the player is balanced or unbalanced when they are about to take the shot or during the shot. You can do this with what they call the body pose representation. And, and this is not surprising. It's a lot harder to make a shot when you're unbalanced than when you are balanced. And when you're balanced and you aren't defended and your body's in the right pose, being successful with a three-point shot is much easier than when you're off balance. To the degree which that is true, I don't know the answer to, but it turns out that the greatest three-point players, three-point shooters today have managed to negotiate this. So now that I'm mentioning the great three-point shooters, who might be the best three-point shooter? Well, and I think most people will agree that it is Steph Curry. And Patrick is now going to tell us a little bit more about what exactly makes Steph Curry great. He takes the most shots unbalanced. Mm. Unbalanced. So that he's, he's because he's yeah. been so closely guarded. So what we're finding, it's really interesting. So his ability to make a shot unbalanced is unparalleled. Right. So and what we're finding, you, you'd assume, okay, he um, gets open a lot. So if he had an open shot, he's more likely to make it than others. But what we're actually finding that it's really hard to find examples of that because it very rarely happens. 
Wow. So Curry is indeed great because he can do well while guarded and unbalanced, and it's hard to shoot unbalanced. And so he's almost undefendable because you can throw as many as many defenders as you want at him, make him take difficult shots from a very long distance, yet he seems to make them. And I like the point at the end is it's hard to know how he does when he's balanced. Imagine how good he would be because he's always <laughs> guarded and he's never in that position. Although I've read some stories about his being able to make three-point shots successively and successfully in practice is unparalleled. One of the intriguing things that Patrick identified in our discussion with the new data that's coming on is the introduction of the the simulation. So if you know enough about the way the game is played, the mechanics of it, it's almost like a video game. You can use that to make inferences about how changes in your playing style will actually manifest itself in the playing field. And let's hear from Patrick. Tell us more about it. We had that tennis paper last year where we won at Sloan about personalization. And then we thought, oh, okay, we, we could easily personalize these shots. But what we're finding is that it's kind of self-selecting. A lot of the top players who are really good were not getting examples of um, taking open shots. And, you know, the not-so-great players are getting open shots, and so they're kind of skewing the distributions. Mm -hmm. There's some really interesting stuff coming out here and and how we can be smart in getting that true shooting percentage in, in, in certain situations. Well, there's a, a confounding factor that Patrick identified. It always looks in, like, in particularly in basketball, although all, all team sports suffer from this, that context is king. And so a, a weaker player might look like they have higher shooting percentages because they're unguarded and therefore they take open shots from a balanced position. The better players are guarded more extensively and have to succeed even under, under a pressing defense and in, in situations that are not easy. The, the latest amount of data will allow you to adjust that and to create what you might call a true shooting percentage. Um, They have so much data going forward, they'll be able to map out for both the NBA and the NFL what it is you can do and what you're capable of and how interventions will change things. And uh, we'll hopefully see some of that technology coming online and, and of course, change the way the game is played, probably slowly and in a personal way. So individual players will be evaluated and also change the way they play, given the data that is collected and what information can be extracted from them. So that concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you'd like to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball live every Wednesday mornings, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111, and it is replayed four or five times throughout the the week. I want to thank our podcast producer, Danielle Bruno, and the producer of Wharton Moneyball, Matt Johnson. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. And until then, enjoy your statistics if you can. And then, of course, enjoy your sports.